This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. Do you need religion to be moral? And why Catholicism is still a force despite the scandals? Briefly, though, Pope Francis has confirmed something we've been reporting on for a while. The Vatican is involved in back-channel negotiations to try to end the war between Russia and Ukraine. During his recent trip to Hungary, Francis met secretly with an envoy of the Russian Orthodox Church. Asked about it, the Pope said... Quote, you can imagine in this meeting we didn't only talk about Little Red Riding Hood. We'll certainly keep an eye on that. At the weekend, Turkish voters head to the polls to elect their president and parliament. The ruling AKP, led by President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is trying to frame the election as a contest between Sunni Islam and Western liberalism or even deviance. But is it working? Dr. Isan Yilmaz is professor at Deakin University and an expert in Turkish politics. The Islamist ruling party is framing this election as a battle between Muslims and non-Muslims, enemies of Islam. But the opposition actually is composed of six opposition parties led by the pro-Western secular Republican People's Party, which is the founder of Turkey 100 years ago. But then there are several Islamist parties in the opposition as well. The main opposition party, Republican People's Party, also includes many practicing Muslims. And they keep saying that they will respect the rights of every religious person in the country and every citizen in the country, and they will not scale back any rights given to practicing Muslims in Turkey. Yes, the campaign of the ruling party is about religion and actually they are saying that the opposition is actually a national security threat because they are working with enemies of Islam. They are working with crusader Western powers that hate Islam. Yeah, Isan, I noticed that President Erdogan has been accusing his opponents of being sexual deviants and in the control of, uh, you know, I think he said LGBTQ activists. How realistic, though, is this accusation? Because even if the Republican Party, which is now a social democratic party, were to win, Turkey would still be a comparatively restrained and conservative country. Is it really a, a realistic accusation? It is not. It is definitely not. About 70% of Turkey's society are still religious. And about 50% of Muslim adult males go to Friday prayers every Friday. And about 60-70% of the people in Turkey fast during Ramadan. So it is a religious country. And there are LGBT groups in Turkey. And during the AKP period, actually, because of the pro-European Union reforms, many LGBT associations have been established. The AKP allowed them, but because it's an election, similar to religion issue, the AKP has been trying to frame the opposition as deviants and saying that the opposition is LGBT, CHP is LGBT, the other opposition parties LGBT. So they've been 
talking about these issues every day, almost every day, not only Erdogan, but also his ministers. But actually, that's not a big concern in Turkish society. But Erdogan is trying to consolidate his own religious electoral base mm. by using this tactic. Yeah. We've done a lot of work on President Erdogan and his religious beliefs. What do we know about the interesting religious identity of his main challenger, Kamal Kilish Daroglu, who is the leader of the opposition coalition? What do we know about his religious background? He belongs to Alevi sect, which is non-Sunni. This is different from Shia. Some people think that it is Shia, but it is actually different. It is a sort of Turkic religion from Central Asia. So it is more, I would say, secular, more pro-nature. It doesn't really have a religious hierarchy and it is heterodox. It is not an orthodox religion. But Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu has been, to a great extent, not hiding, but he is not really underlining his religious identity because of the unfortunately misperceptions in Turkish society, especially among the rural Sunni sections. And these are mostly the AKP supporters at the moment. They think that they are deviant, they are perverts, etc. So Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu hasn't been underlining this. And he talked about this in the past, so he was not really hiding it. And Erdogan was asking him several times, look, I am a Sunni, I can say this openly. Why don't you tell people that you are an Alevi, etc.? Because he knows that in the perception, in the minds of his voters, Sunnis, Alevis are terrible people. So he's been trying to frame this. But if you look at Alevism, they are, I would say, more liberal in the sense. So gender equality, for instance, is more prominent in them. They are pro-arts. But because of the Ottoman history, unfortunately, there were massacres committed against them. So mostly in society, they wouldn't openly talk about their identity. Yeah. The Alevi, though, are not an insignificant group. Yes, I'm not sure about this number, but it is definitely more than 10%. It is between 10 and 15%, which is a significant number of society. But regardless of their numbers, they are Turkish citizens and there are not different classes of citizenship in Turkey. So everybody is a first-class citizen in Turkey. But in most cases, unfortunately, this is just on paper. And in practice, they've been discriminated against. And in the past, several AKP politicians said that we managed to keep Alevis out of the state. Look, we don't have any Alevi governors and so on. So they've been posting about this. Mm. Isan, the Kurdish question is one of these perennial questions in Turkish politics. Erdogan's main ally in his government is an anti-Kurdish party, but the opposition also has, I think it's called the Good Party, and it is, let us say, not sympathetic to the Kurdish cause, is there any chance of the Kurdish issue ever being resolved? Hopefully, but not in the short term. The E party, the good party, they are Turkish nationalists, but compared to the other nationalist party, which is an ally of Erdogan, the E party is more pro-Western, more city urban based. So they are more democratic in a sense. But because they are Turkish nationalists, yes, they are not happy with the Kurdish opposition. 
but it is difficult to say that they are enemies of Kurds or they don't like Kurds, but they are a little bit hesitant because of these paranoia around the Turkish religious and ethnic minorities. They are afraid that the Western powers are trying to divide and rule Turkey. They are supporting all these minorities. There is this paranoia and anxiety in Turkey. This has been the case for decades, unfortunately. But I don't think if CHP, the the main opposition party, if they come to power and if they want to democratize Turkish society, I don't think the EU party would oppose it. But I don't think either that there will be some radical changes. Mm. But more democracy will mean that Kurds will have more rights. But I think this will be a gradual progress. Just finally, Isan, you mentioned earlier the way that Erdogan has tried to use Islam as a foreign policy issue in this election. What is the story with Sweden and the Quran? Because that keeps coming up in this election, doesn't it? Yes, that keeps coming up. And just there was a report a few days ago saying that this was a part of Russian influence operation abroad, the Russian sharp power. So it is different from soft power. It is different from hard power. So Russia has been using this misinformation and disinformation campaigns to manipulate democratic public spheres, especially in the West. So they've been encouraging these Islamophobic guys to just go and burn Quran and attack Tayyip Erdogan and so on, so that the, the Turkish public is against Sweden's membership of the NATO. But this didn't really have an impact in Turkey among the Turkish public. They did not really bother about this, so Erdogan couldn't really benefit from a lot. He was very happy. Of course, he didn't say that he was happy. He said, look, they are attacking our Quran. And because he presents himself as the defender of the faith, defender of Islam against all these enemies, especially Western powers. So this was a great opportunity for him. But I think people in Turkey are getting used to it. So many people in Turkey actually didn't bother about this. So he couldn't really benefit from this incident in Sweden. Professor Isan Yilmaz of Deakin University. Do you need religion to be moral? A big question. The Pew Research Centre in Washington surveyed 22,000 people across 17 mainly Western countries. It got some very interesting responses, including from Australia. Dr Janelle Fetterolf is a senior researcher at Pew. The survey asked people whether they think it's necessary to believe in God to be moral and have good values. And in most of the countries we surveyed, relatively few people hold this belief. A meeting of 29% across the 17 countries say it's essential to believe in God to be moral, and a meeting of 68% say it's not. And Australia itself was one of the countries featured. Where does Australia sit on this table? Australia has one of the highest shares of the country's survey that say it's not necessary to believe in God to be moral. It's just behind Sweden, which takes the top spot. So 85% of people in Australia say you can have good values without believing in God. Just 15% say it's necessary to believe in God to be moral. And really what we see in Australia is a lot of agreement. There aren't large differences between groups based on age or education or other demographic variables that we look at. But most people in most groups in Australia do not see a belief in God as a requirement for morality. 
Now, interestingly, where does Australia sit compared with the United States? Because the United States is a more outwardly religious country. What were the results in the United States? In the United States, you have more people compared to Australia saying that it is necessary. In the U.S., 34% of people say it's necessary to believe in God in order to be moral, and 65% say it's not necessary. Israel is a very interesting case. What is the situation in Israel? Israel is the only country we surveyed where views on this question are fairly split among the general public. So 50% say it's not necessary to believe in God to be moral, and 47% say it is necessary. What we see in Israel is a wide range of beliefs that differ along the lines of religious affiliation. So a majority of Israelis are Jewish, with a large minority who are Muslim, and these two groups have very different views on this topic. 77% of Israeli Muslims say it's necessary to believe in God to have good values, compared with 42% of Israeli Jews. And even among Israeli Jews, we see large deviations across the different Jewish groups. So the smaller Orthodox groups are much more likely to say that you need to believe in God to be moral compared with the larger traditional or secular Jewish groups. What factors influence the way people think about this question? Do you need to uh, believe in God to be more moral? So I'm sure there are even more factors than we were able to look at, but there are several factors that we did look at that are related to this view. In at least half of the countries that we surveyed, younger adults, which we classify as adults under 30, are more likely than older adults to say that you don't have to believe in God to be moral. People who have a college degree or higher are more likely to say that a belief in God is not essential for morality. We also see differences based on where people fall on the political spectrum. Those on the political left are more likely to say that a belief in God is not connected with morality compared to those on the right. And as you might imagine, religious affiliation is strongly related to these beliefs. So those who say that they're atheist, agnostic, or just nothing in particular when you ask about their religion are much more likely to say that you can be moral without believing in God. But I do think it's interesting to note in this study that even among people who are affiliated with a religion, a lot of people don't equate morality with a belief in God. So Australia is actually a good example of this. 97% of people who are unaffiliated with religion say you can be moral without believing in God. And 75% of people who are affiliated with religion agree. Wealth, I think, is also a factor here. I mean, essentially, your socioeconomic status. Yes, we find that too. In past surveys where we had a larger number of countries to look at, there's definitely a relationship between wealth, personal wealth, and whether you think you need to believe in God to be moral with those people who have less income being more likely to hold this view. We've talked about countries at one end, Australia and Sweden being the two countries where significant majorities of people say you don't need God for morality. At the other end, what do Malaysians say? 78% in Malaysia say that you have to believe in God in order to have good values. Everywhere else, we see at least half in Israel or much more who say the opposite. Janelle, how does this study compare with an earlier study on the same issue uh, that you did back in 2019? Our 2019 survey, as I mentioned, was a little bit larger. So we had 34 countries, many more countries that we were able to conduct in person. And again, most of these are emerging or developing economies. 
And this is relevant to this question because our 2019 survey found a fairly strong relationship where countries with lower GDPs had much higher shares of people who say that a belief in God is necessary to have good values. So income is related to this question, not only at a personal level, but on the country level as well. So in 2019 in Sweden, which has one of the highest GDPs of all the countries we survey, I've already mentioned very few people hold this view, but in places like the Philippines, Indonesia, Kenya, Nigeria, and Tunisia, all countries with emerging or developing economies, more than 80% of people saw belief in God as necessary for morality in our 2019 survey. Kenya, I think, really stands out. 95% yes. of people say believing in God was a necessary aspect of morality, uh, and more than 80% in those other countries, as you mentioned. I, I mean, Brazil is a particularly good example, and Nigeria. Is there an obvious correlation here between these results and the fact that, according to Pew Research, the growth area, very significant growth area for religion, is below the equator? Absolutely. We've also found in our prior surveys that many people in these lower income countries and countries with emerging or developing economies also say that religion is very important to them, that God plays an important role in their life. There are also some surveys we've conducted where we see a greater relationship or a desired relationship between religion and politics. So it's definitely a larger part of life that we've seen in a lot of the surveys that we've done. Janelle Federolf of the Pew Research Centre. And you're with me, Andrew West, on the Religion and Ethics Report here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese calls himself a non-practising or cultural Catholic. He's not alone. In the US, Pew Research finds half of those raised in the faith call themselves lapsed Catholics. They're unable or unwilling to completely abandon their heritage. So what gives Catholicism such a strong cultural grip on Australia, even as religious observance falls? Philosopher James Franklin tackles the question in his new book, Catholic Thought and Catholic Action. Yes, they quit, but in a way, they never quite quit, especially often in the ethical side. They'll say that they learn something about their ethics, their commitment to social justice, for example, from their Catholic upbringing. And they don't want to deny that, even though they don't believe any of uh, what's sometimes called the mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, that's, that's a phrase from uh, Attlee, the socialist British prime minister, who said uh, about Christianity, believe in the ethics, can't believe the mumbo-jumbo. Well, a lot of uh, ex-Catholics believe something like that. They never really get away from it, especially on the ethical side. Is it something unique to Catholicism, by the way, because it's uh, perhaps not impossible, but frankly, it's almost pointless to say you're a, a non-practicing cultural Anglican or a non-practicing cultural <laughs> Baptist right. or uh, Pentecostal. Julie, Julie Gillard almost said something like she's a non-practicing uh, cultural Baptist because she did have an upbringing like that. So it can happen, but there's something special about the Catholic Church in its high level of organization for example, in its school organization. So you can be a cultural Catholic without being a practicing Catholic by having such a soaking in your bringing up, going to church, going to school, in a way that is not quite so true, I think, of other traditions, other Christian traditions. They don't have quite the same sense around almost in our upbringing. And one of the other chapters in my book is about how, especially in the mid-20th century, 
the Catholics tried to make their culture a complete culture so that everything you joined was a Catholic thing. And you had Catholic fraternities for doctors and for lawyers and for, oh, yeah. bis- and for business right. people. Even, yeah, Even engineers, I, I just heard. I hadn't realised that. Postal workers, train workers, transport union, dentists, they all had their Catholic fraternities and a communion breakfast every year so that they formed their own culture, talked to each other, supported each other, shared views, met each other so that Catholics married Catholics. And not so much in this country, but certainly in Europe, you even had Catholic trade unions. I mean, I think you had unofficial Catholic trade unions in this country, but in Europe you had very explicitly Catholic trade unions. And here, in some sense, you didn't need explicitly Catholic trade unions because Catholics were so strong in the Labour Party. And if the communists could be got out and expelled, then uh, you virtually had Catholic control of unions. Almost true in New South Wales, uh, where the communists were expelled. The the Carl government in the 1950s was very heavily Catholic and based on a lot of Catholic control of the unions. Now, Jim, this fascinating book covers, uh, look, to put it in plain language, the good, the bad and the ugly. And there's a lot of good and we are going to discuss that. But I want to ask you about the ugliest first. Why did you think it was necessary to write a chapter discussing Gerard Ridsdale, Australia's worst pedophile priest? History is about what happened, not what you wish had happened and not what theory says ought to have happened, as Thomas Sowell said. If you're going to be serious about history, you've got to have the full picture. And that is the, well, I suppose, tip of the iceberg. Gerard Ridsdale raped very many people. And he wasn't quite a one-off in the sense that the people upstairs in the church who knew about his activity failed to stop him. Well, that's part of the story. And uh, there's no point in denying it, and especially since everybody knows about it. We had a royal commission into it. So Australia has had the, what is, I think, the most intensive outside investigation of a national Catholic church anywhere in the world ever. Those stories ought to be told as much as any good stories. Now, another very difficult aspect that you don't shy away from is this historical phenomenon of the Magdalen laundries. These were places that Protestant propaganda described as almost slave-like in their conditions. I think you find, though, that this description was not entirely without truth. That's right. Protestant propaganda for for years talked about convent slave laundries and people laughed at it, but it was not so far from the truth. They took girls off the streets. The original idea was a very good one, that uh, there was many destitute young women on the streets and the nuns took them in and gave them a refuge. It was like refuges from domestic violence today. But at some point around 1900, they became prisons because courts referred girls who were involved in prostitution or were just without invisible means of support to the laundries, and they were locked in. And they were laundry work was how these institutions supported themselves. They were very underfunded. They weren't funded by government at all, and they were poorly funded by Catholic authorities, who, of course, were always short of money. Laundry work was extremely hard, and they weren't properly educated either. It was close to slave labour. They were all let out when they were 18, given them some very basic support to make their way in the world. But it's a story of good intentions going wrong in execution, I suppose you would say that. Of course, there are many bad stories about institutionalisation of 
various people in mental institutions and child immigrants and so on in the mid-20th century was a time of institutionalization as a solution to too many problems. But, yeah, the Catholic Church has to wear that it got some of that wrong. Yeah, and as you point out in the book, quite horribly wrong. I mean, I've got to say what struck me, Jim, about this chapter dealing with the Magdalen laundries is that the nuns, for whatever their their good intent, they were hopelessly, inadequately qualified to cope with assisting the lives of young women who'd often been abused, sexually abused by their fathers. They just weren't equipped to deal with this. They were not qualified. That's right. There was no sense that you ought to be qualified or that there was any relevant qualifications to have. People went into convents at very young ages, like 15, and their training was in prayer. So that's not much help for dealing with people disturbed people who were absolutely the opposite kind of background. Yeah, it wasn't going to work. And there wasn't proper thought given by those people building these institutions what you should do about it. Let's talk about the way Catholic teaching and one particular Catholic politician literally changed the face of Australia. Who are you talking about here? I'm talking about Arthur Corwell, especially in his time as immigration minister in the late 1940s. He was appointed Australia's first immigration minister by the Chifley government, itself heavily Catholic, in 1945, and it was his job to implement the Populate or Perish plan. He worked very hard to find immigrants. In the end, he found them in the camps of Central Europe, where there were, by 1946 or so, a million refugees from the Red Army left over from the disturbed times of the last few years. There was a coordinated world plan, and the Australian part of the plan was to take about 160 or 170,000 of those, Poles, Baltic peoples, Ukrainians, eventually Italians, originally Eastern Europeans who are in, in camps, bring them to Australia, give them work, and call them New Australians. And it was the first mass non-English-speaking immigration into Australia. It was an extraordinary success, and it changed the face of Australia because it was successful. It might not have been. People could have been xenophobic and decided that we couldn't have these, but Gorwell convinced everybody. It would help that he was a strong Labor man, and of course, Labor, who was traditionally suspicious about immigration plans because they thought it was importing cheap Labor. Mm. As a strict Labor man... Gorwell forced it through and managed to convince the newspapers as well, who again were hard to convince, that it was marvellous for Australia. Yeah, but this Jim was very clever on the part of Corwell. We think of him as this rather rough-hewn man, but he was very, very clever. First of all, as you say, he referred to the refugees and the new economic migrants as new Australians. He wanted Australians to think of them as new brothers and sisters. And the second thing is, even though most of the the first intake started off as sort of blonde-haired and blue-eyed, Corwell really did lay the groundwork for a much more multicultural country, a lot more Southern Europeans uh, and then people from the Middle East. Uh, What was the Mm. Catholic imperative, the Catholic teaching that drove him on this question? Catholic teaching is that immigrants, people in difficult position overseas, have a certain right to the free spaces of rich countries. It's a matter of social justice. It's not to say that all immigrants should be allowed in, but nevertheless, that rich countries who have space, 
have a, have an actual obligation, a literal obligation, to uh, do something for those in poor positions like refugees. Now, one issue, Jim, that is really dominating the news at the moment is the rights of First Nations peoples, Indigenous Australians, and perhaps the case that really created a new era of Indigenous recognition was the Mabo decision on native title back in 1992. Was it a coincidence that I think the majority of the High Court justices who ruled in favour of Mabo were very observant Catholics. Yes, two judges most responsible for the decision were Sir Gerard Brennan and William Dean, and they were very serious Catholics, not just serious as Catholics, but serious as Catholic philosophers of law. If you like to look back at what they wrote in the decades before, they were very insistent on the Catholic philosophy of law, which is that the point of law is to implement an abstract standard of justice rather than just to coordinate things like deciding which side the road to drive on. So they think there is an abstract standard of justice. The point of law is to implement that. The point of criminal law is to convict the people who deserve it, those who have actually done something wrong. In Mabo, they said there was a basic value of the law, the equality of persons, which previous uh, precedents, terra nullius, saying that Indigenous people had no land rights, violated. And they said, well, that is a moral principle, an essential part of the law. And that was the basis, they said, of overturning the precedent of terra nullius and deciding that Indigenous people, as equal to everyone else, had the same land rights as everyone else. James Franklin, Jim's new book is Catholic Thought and Catholic Action, Scenes from Australian Catholic Life, and it's published by Connor Court. Jim, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Many thanks. And that is the show for today. You can find us using the search function at the ABC Listen app. We're in the Society and Culture section. Or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like us, maybe you can leave a nice review. Thanks to Hong Jang and Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.